When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. John Richens about his new book, Tick Meraki, an epidemic like no other, published by Melbourne University Press in March of 2022. John Richens is regarded internationally as a leading expert on the sexually transmitted infection, donovanosis. He studied classics in medicine at King's College, Cambridge, and King's College, London and then tropical medicine at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. His interest in donovanosis was sparked by patients he encountered while working in the highlands of Papua New Guinea from 1984 to 1990. After returning to the UK, he became an academic specialist in HIV and sexually transmitted infections at University College London and overseas as a consultant to the World Health Organization and other aid agencies. With John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be doing my first podcast in relation to this book. Well, you're a wonderful guest to have here speaking about your very interesting book. And the book sprang from your personal experience as a physician in Papua New Guinea. Would you tell us how that came about and how you came to write the book some years later? I remember as a child noticing uh, New Guinea on a map because it has this extraordinary contour of a bird and uh, you could almost think that there must have been an intelligent designer uh, creating uh, the most beautiful birds in the world, the birds of paradise, and then putting them into an island with the shape of a bird. But the, the next big step forward for me and my interest in New Guinea came when I was a medical student at Cambridge University. And uh, the most memorable lecture that I, I recall from that time was, was on the subject of what was called slow viruses. That was the early 1970s. And um, these were intriguing diseases because they were clearly transmissible, but they had no identifiable transmission transmissible agent, no bacteria, no viruses, but they behave like infectious diseases. And the most famous example, in fact, the first example of this type of disease to be described uh, was Kuru, which is a disease that uh, caused an epidemic of a neurological disease in a remote part of the New Guinea highlands. Um, And the most extraordinary feature of this illness was the mode of transmission, uh, which was through the consumption of human brain by women and children during funeral rituals of the foray people. So I was just, I, I just found this extraordinary that there's this, this bizarre disease occurring in this remote place. And uh, I thought this must be an amazing place to, to, to practice medicine. And then Later on, as a medical student, I had to choose where to go for my elective medical period. And I love travel. I spent all my summers hitchhiking around Europe and North Africa. And so I chose um, West Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, and went to a small mission hospital. And that was my first taste of work in the developing country. And uh, I worked in a small hospital where all the doctors had to have all round skills and I thought, this is what I want. I want to work in a developing country. I want to practice something like all-round medicine. Um, so I then sort of set out to to acquire the necessary skills. And uh, at one point, I went to the London School of Hygiene of Tropical Medicine uh, to, to do a master's course in clinical tropical medicine. 
And my mentor on this course was Dr. Paul Hugo Ray, and he'd worked in New Guinea. He highly recommended it as a place to, to start a career in tropical medicine, and he had contacts in the health department. So he fixed me up with a job there, and uh, I had a contract for three years. I loved it so much. I spent nearly seven years there in total. And before I went, we had a chat about research opportunities. He says, you're going to encounter this disease called Donovanosis. Uh, nobody knows anything about it. It's very neglected. Um, you know, that would be a great topic for you to choose uh, for research. So I, I took that advice. And uh, um, the first step to writing this book was actually unearthing an unpublished manuscript about about this epidemic that affected the Marind people in, in Dutch New Guinea in the, in the beginning of the 19, uh, 20th century. And I had I translated this and had it published in the local medical journal. And then in 1990, I came back to the UK and I began to use the story as a case study. Um, and that prompted me to sort of delve into it in, in more depth. There was no pressure to write a book, uh, but a very strong impulse to, to try and understand the context of this epidemic. And my father uh, was something of a role model because my father only wrote one book in his lifetime. He spent the uh, best part of 30, 40 years collecting data for it. It was, uh, it was the definitive uh, monograph on the elm tree and uh, it covered every conceivable aspect. It covered the, the botany, it covered the, the insects that associated with the tree and then it went on to look at the tree in literature, in art, in uh, words for elm in different languages and so on. And uh, so he was definitely a sort of my inspiration I, that there was no hurry that it was great it would be great to explore all aspects of this topic before sitting down to write about it and uh when the lockdown came i had this mass of material um and i thought well it's it's time to finally pull it all together and try and find a publisher uh, which was not particularly easy because it is a, a very esoteric subject uh in a part of the world that's remote from from you know the western western world so um that's that's essentially the story of why it took so long to write the book and 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 how i got to new guinea well that's quite a role model <laughs> your dad yeah indeed yeah <laughs> yeah the elm tree story. Uh, so, as you noted, this is also this is a history as well as a, a story of a disease. Uh, but let's just begin with: Would you explain what denovenosis, um, which, as I may or may not have mentioned, is also known as granuloma inguinale, um, particularly in the United States, what, what it is, and how it compares to maybe better known sexually transmitted diseases like chlamydia and syphilis, uh, and. and yeah, I was just going to oh, yeah, go ahead and then I'll ask yeah, my follow-up. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, you've picked you've picked an, a good pair there, chlamydia and syphilis. So they represent the two of the main classes of sexually transmitted disease. Chlamydia causes discharges either from the penis or from the from the cervix in women, uh, whereas uh, syphilis is an ulcerative disease. So donovanosis belongs in the ulcerative disease category. Um, it causes ulcers in the genital area, in men and women. Um, but its, its distinguishing feature is that the infection spreads to the, um, the lymph glands in the groin, and then it often will erupt through the skin above those glands, giving very characteristic lesions that, you know, if you know the disease, are quite unmistakable. It's, it's potentially a very chronic disease. Uh, without treatment, it can go on for months or even years. Um, and then there are various complications that occur in neglected cases. So for men, the most fearsome one is that the penis can actually drop off if the ulcers actually surround the base of the penis. Um, in women, it can extend from the cervix up into the into the tubes uh, and, and affect the ovaries. So that's that doesn't happen very often. Um, it's rarely fatal, but um, if a woman is pregnant when she contracts the disease and has it on the cervix, during childbirth, the cervix can tear and the, the organisms can then enter the uh, bloodstream and disseminate widely with fatal outcome. So the bacteria involved here um, are called, it's a, it's a Klebsiella, an intracellular Klebsiella. Um, and um, 
in terms of its its current extent, um, the disease was once common in the southern USA until about 1950, and it's pretty much vanished from there. Uh, it's, it's very little seen in Africa now, um, but it does hang on in parts of South America, in parts of India, and I think probably New Guinea is the the most endemic area left in the world now. It was widely seen among the Aboriginal population in Australia, but it's been successfully eradicated from there. So it's a it's a disease that's a candidate for global eradication, but because it occurs in in mostly in very poor play, poor countries with poor health services, um, you know, health priorities in those countries tend to be focused on 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 more important uh, conditions. Uh, you can treat it easily. It, it responds to a lot of broad spectrum antibiotics. So today, finding a treatment is not difficult, and if it's treated early on, you know it never, never progresses very far. Um, but at the time of my book, um, so early twentieth uh, century, there were no antibiotics, and the only treatment that was available was a very a rather toxic uh, heavy metal compound uh, based on antimony, uh, known as tartarimetic, which hints at its at its toxicity. Well, that sounds like a really unpleasant disease. Indeed, uh, as particularly if you're having it untreated, uh, and I can imagine it was really alarming. So the people you write about who were affected by de novenosis were the Marins of Papua New Guinea, and this was in the early 1900s. Um, and as you explained, this is a sexually transmitted disease, and it was generally understood by people who were uh, around it throughout the time of the epidemic that the Marins' behaviors contributed to the spread of disease, uh, even though the theories as to how and why that was differed a lot. But before we get into that, I'm curious as to why in the book you refer to semen practices rather than what I might think of as sexual practices. Yes, so this is a term that I I found in the writings of of an American um, anthropologist uh, Deborah Elliston and um the what, the reason I chose it was that the the Marin um put semen to use in an extraordinary variety of different ways. And many of these had bore no relationship to eroticism or sexual desire. So examples would be they would put semen onto buds of plants to make them grow. Um, one of their favourite traditional medicines involved a special f- type of banana combined with semen. And uh, when they decorated women's skin with special scar patterns. They would put semen into the wounds, which they believe would make those wounds grow into, into prominent scars uh, for, for decorative purposes. So because uh, semen was being used in this way, I thought semen practices was, was a, a, a useful term. And I was anxious to steer clear of the sort of racist stereotyping of people of colour as being hypersexual, um, particularly because in this in this case semen was being harvested for purposes that were you know often entirely independent of se- human sexual and reproductive health so the missionaries there were a lot of missionaries there um, and not surprisingly they thought that the marin's behavior was wanton and promiscuous to say the least so what was it in the nature of the semen practices that in your analysis contributed to the spread or to the increase in de novenosis? Um, the, 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 the health risks uh, for the Marins lay in their preferred manner of, of harvesting semen for ritual purposes. So they felt that the um, if you were to collect semen from one man through masturbation, that lacked the potency that could be achieved if you combined the semen of several men with a certain amount of female um, vaginal fluid. Um, So that required certain individual women to have serial intercourse with a number of men and the woman would then collect the semen into a a coconut receptacle and then it would be used for ritual purposes. Um, The numbers involved we're pretty uncertain about. But I think uh, the simplest way to explain this very unusual epidemic is 
to postulate that there was a steady escalation of this practice in response to various catastrophic events that were taking place among the Marind at that time. Um, Another key use of semen which should be mentioned is that uh, it, it was felt necessary to prepare the adolescent male for adult life. So while the mother breastfed her, her male infants, it was considered the role of uh, a maternal uncle to take over this type of nurturing role when the male um, child reached adolescence. And then the milk of motherhood, as it were, was replaced by the semen of an uncle. And during the epidemic, the youngest age group affected were male uh, adolescents, and they all had anal lesions. So this makes it clear that this this semen feeding, as it were, um, had to involve anal sex. So that's the kind of practice that's very difficult for a Westerner to understand. And I think the missionaries certainly didn't. And... Uh, another thing the Marin did was they practiced headhunting. And that attracted a lot of Western interest uh, from the missionaries to even Hollywood film directors. Again, something very difficult for Westerners to understand or accept. So it's part of your thesis that the suppression of headhunting by colonial powers helped to spread the epidemic. And how did that occur? It certainly seems counterintuitive that that such such a thing could have such consequences but i think one has to appreciate the the shocking upheaval that took place among the marines when they were denied access to the headhunting ritual which they considered to be absolutely vital to their own survival um we know that the marines were plagued by infertility uh, before this donovanosis epidemic took off and we also know that they were using the headhunting raids to acquire infants from um, neighbouring communities and thus to compensate for their infertility in this manner. So when the Dutch put, uh, banned headhunting, um, they didn't realise that they were denying access to children to the Marind. Um, and so I'm certain that, that the semen practices then started to ramp up um, because uh, they were desperately trying to restore the fertility of their own women. Um, at the same time, the Marins were blaming themselves for failing to repel the Dutch from their land, and they believed that uh, their spirit ancestors, known as the Dema in Marin culture, uh, needed to be appeased through increased ritual activity. And ritual activity among the Marins was almost synonymous with, with these um, semen practices. Hmm. And one of the great problems for the Marins, something you've touched on, was a persistent decline in fertility. But you write that donovanosis very rarely causes infertility. So what was causing infertility and how did the Marind and uh, the people who were trying to reform them address it? It's clear, um, certainly to me, that that the uh, infertility was present um, quite some time before the epidemic really, really took off. And if we look across Oceania as a whole at this time, we find there's, there was actually widespread concern about depopulation. Um, and the colonial administrators were all worrying that it would impact colonial activity. You know, there was a lot of labour recruitment in the Pacific to Queensland sugar plantations and so on. And uh, it was very obvious that fertility right across the Pacific was falling um, quite dramatically. And uh, the causes of this were were hotly debated. Um, there were people like W.H. Rivers who thought that it was the psychological impact of colonisation that was uh, leading to a, a fall, fall in the desire to reproduce. But uh, I think those, those ideas now have been pretty much set aside. Uh, there's far more evidence to suggest that, in fact, gonorrhea came into the Pacific region from Europe from the time of Captain Cook onwards. Um, and we know that there were many island communities that had a, had very relaxed attitudes to teenage sexuality, and this was exploited by, particularly initially by the whaling industry, which came 
you know, in large numbers to the Pacific in the in the nineteenth century, um, and then subsequently you had the colonial uh, administrators uh, often um, taking local women as mistresses um, and contributing to to the spread of gonorrhea. And uh, a very similar pattern has been observed in sub-Saharan Africa in the same period, that uh, with the change in labour patterns, um, there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of young single men um, away from their families and prostitution starting to, to grow in these communities. So in Africa, very similar pattern of depopulation um, of rise in prostitution, which in, in the African case laid the ground for the spread of HIV um, later on. So in terms of the response um, to this problem, or the problem of infertility, it was really the, the, the missionaries who, who led, the, uh, led the response, but they, they did it unwittingly. They didn't realise uh, that they were helping the infertility problem. Um, so what they did was to experiment with what they called model villages. And this was a uh, system that they developed in the Congo in Africa. And they would build a new village and encourage young, healthy married couples to settle in those villages, adopt a sort of more Western lifestyle, i.e., you know, Western clothing, uh, Christianity, and so on. And... um, this was primarily a way to win recruits to to um, to Christianity, um, but when they tried it out in New Guinea, they found, also noticed that the young women um, remained fertile, and uh, so this was seized upon by by the government as a as a way to to tackle the infertility problem they thought the, the missionary started off with just one or two village model villages um, where women continued to have children and the government said we must roll this out right across the community uh, because uh, this is this is clearly a way that we can res- restore fertility and the infertility levels I, I don't have the figures to hand but it was really striking that do you yeah, absolutely. Recall the percentages um, of well, some of the some of the early uh, missionaries did sort of house to house surveys of villages, and they found that um, there were at least thirty percent of women who'd never never given birth, mm. and those that had maybe had only had one child and then no more. So it was it was very striking, and certainly deaths were outnumbering births, and you know so people projecting that the marriage would be extinct within within seven years was one one much quoted figure at the time and at what point was the headhunting really um suppressed to the where it, it stopped happening so they, yeah. yeah so i mean it's fascinating that that it, the whole story is in some ways an accident of geography because the Marins lived in in uh, the part of New Guinea that was a, controlled by the Dutch and there was an international boundary with British New Guinea and the Marins were raiding across that international boundary. So the British insisted that the Dutch do something about it. So they then built a garrison and they stopped any uh, Marins traveling in war parties in canoes along the coast. So stopping it on the coast was done quite quickly and it wasn't difficult, but uh, raiding inland um, went on for much, much longer. There's reports of headhunting, you know, up to the Second World War in remoter areas. Um, But the Marins were, the majority population were living on the coast. And so a real significant aspect of the headhunting was acquiring young children to incorporate. Absolutely. And in fact, after the after it was banned by the Dutch, um, the Marians continued um, to uh, visit uh, neighbouring communities and try and buy children um, uh, from from them. So they they stopped taking heads and they would go along in their canoes with with a supply of axes and and uh, trade goods and try and buy children. Hmm. And they raised those children as their own and yeah, treated yeah. them as members well, of the Marins. Well, um, that was the that was the intention. But of course, the Dutch government then stepped in and would confiscate um, abducted children and put them into mission schools. 
so the book contains um, information, characterizations, um, some a number of characters who were involved, uh, really fascinating characters. And three of them in particular uh, you write about were critically important in Western understanding of the Marin culture. And uh, please forgive me or correct me if I pronounce these names wrong because they are Swiss and Dutch, but one of them was the Swissman Paul Wurtz. And then there were two Dutchmen, Jan van Baal and Jan Verschuren. And Wurtz in particular had a, a sort of larger than life persona. He had a lot of unusual aspects of himself. Uh, but can you give a brief, synop- brief synopsis of each one of them and then what they contributed and how they contributed it to Western knowledge of the Marand? Uh, certainly. So let's start off with, with Paul Wietz, as he would be in Switzerland. Um, and he was a real oddball. He was a man who dreamed of settling in a culture that was completely untouched by the Western world. And when he arrived in New Guinea, uh, he was rather put out to find that the missionaries had, had already been there for 10 years. But at the same time, he must have benefited hugely from their presence because, you know, they'd been studying the language, which is an extraordinarily difficult language, and they'd been studying the customs and actually publishing quite a lot of, of really interesting articles on, on, on them. So he built on that. He spent three years there, and he was unbelievably industrious. He, he worked really hard and gathered a massive information so that everyone that followed him owed him a huge debt. And, of course, he was there talking to people to whom the headhunting was pretty recent history. He was there in 1915 and, um, you know, the Dutch had arrived in 1902. So there were plenty of older people to talk to who who knew about the old lifestyle. Um, so that's Paul Vietz. Um, Van Baal was a man who trained as a colonial administrator and he was appointed to take the post in Meraki on the strength of his student thesis, which was actually a reanalysis of Vietz's data. So he he um, you know wrote an academic piece um, looking looking at Vietz and sort of reanalyzing some of his particularly the stuff on Marind myths that uh, that Paul Vietz had collected, and. Um, but, you know, he remained in the colonial service. He rose to become the last governor of Dutch New Guinea. And um, uh, so he was not a man who had time to do any field work. And um, in the 1960s, um, after he'd left New Guinea, he, was, he became a professor of anthropology and he decided to sort of write the definitive work on the Marind. Um, and this is a massive tome. It's over a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, he relied heavily on Vietz. He cites him over a thousand times in the book. Um, and he basically analysed absolutely everything missionaries, Vietz and others had written about the Marind and tried to sort of pull it all together and analyse it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's the acknowledged uh, main authority on, on Marin culture today. Um, but the in, interesting aspect of, of the way he worked was that he would, he would write a chapter and then he would send it to... A, um, a father, uh, Jan Veshuren, is the correct pronunciation. <laughs> um, and uh, this guy was the unsung hero of Marin anthropology because he he spent 30 years of his life there. He was the only really fluent speaker of, of their language. And he was in a position to, to verify a lot of what Vietz had written and what Van Baal was trying to write. Uh, so, you know, as as Van Baal sent chapters out to him, he would he would send masses of of notes and corrections back, and he really should have been listed as co-author of the book, but he he very modestly declined. He said, "I think the title says with the collaboration of um, uh, Jan Verschuren," um, but you know he was hugely important, and uh, he was much closer to the Marin than any other person that studied them. So, I think. Uh, that is something that needs to be recognised more, uh, what an important uh, part he played. Um, so there we have, we, ha- we have three people. We have, we have a sort of early 
the early work of Vietz that laid the foundations for everything that followed. Uh, we then have Van Baal producing the definitive work, but doing the least field work. And then we have the Catholic priest who's been forgotten, but actually, you know, probably contributed more knowledge, more accurate and useful knowledge than any, any other single individual. And is he the one that is remembered in Marin's culture today? Um, so the one who's remembered today is um, Petrus Vertenten. Petrus Vertenten. Yes. Yeah. And Vertenten was quite an accomplished scholar in his own right. He, 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 uh, uh, he produced one of the first dictionaries of the Marin language. But the reason Vertenten is remembered is that when the epidemic struck, he was incredibly diligent in raising awareness through his journalism, both in the Netherlands and in, in Jakarta, Batavia, as it was called at that time. Um, and so he became a sort of almost a celebrity figure because he was saying there's this terrible epidemic, the Dutch government have got to do something. And he was vocal enough to trigger a debate in the Dutch parliament and get action. So he's remembered because he's, he, he's the person who took the most trouble to make sure that the Marind eventually re- received help for the epidemic. And he has two statues. He has a statue in the Netherlands, uh, no, in Belgium, where he was born in, in Hammer in Belgium. And then the, there's a second statue actually in the, um, the Marind village where he, he, uh, carried out a lot of his work. And so all of these men went to uh, that area for different reasons, and they weren't necessarily trained anthropologists. And they were, of course, they were coming from the you know, colonial side of things. Uh, and yet they, in one sense, they were real advocates for the Marin. But do you have a sense now, looking back historically, what was the balance of how helpful were they to the Marinder? You know, they 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 were interpreting a culture that we can't possibly know from the inside out. Um, but they were also involved in in policies that were set forth by the Dutch government, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, you could say that they were the the um, the humanitarian arm of the government. You know, the government were there to exploit. Uh, New Guinea as a, as a colony, you know, to find ways to, to generate income from it. Um, there was trading in, in copra, there was trading in bird of paradise feathers at one point and so on. So, so but the government, uh, I mean, the Dutch government at that time did have an, what they called an ethical policy, which was, you know, to look at education, welfare of, of indigenous peoples. But they, they basically delegated that to the missions. They thought the missions, you know, We'll we'll provide a hospital for the the expats. The missions can do do healthcare for the for the indigenous people. So they were they were they worked very closely with government, and they were as it were a sort of um, yeah an arm of government. Yeah, and just what was the Marin response to the treatment for de novenosis? Was that something that they welcomed, or they felt was threatening them, or what what was their response to that? I find it very hard to to find any kind of first hand uh, testimony about how they how they responded. But knowing the diseases, I know it. I mean, it's it's a pretty hideous disease, and um, the treatment was dramatically effective. You know, the the these horrible ulcers would shrink down, and and you could it would you know, would would be healed within a couple of weeks of, of starting on treatment. So um, I think that once they'd seen the effectiveness of treatment, I think they started queuing up for it. Uh, but before then, they were, um, you know, there were doctors trying to do surveys and doing surveys that involve genital examination, obviously a very difficult thing to do. And people often run away when, when, when the, the doctors turned up. And the doctors didn't turn up alone. They turned up with an armed guard. You know, they would turn up with a police force to try and catch everyone and force them to be examined. There was a, it was very coercive and, and much disliked by the, by, by the local population. But, you know, when when the people who were really suffering and and really sick with the disease were cured, you know that that I think that changed hearts and minds. And we know in other parts of the world, if you look at um, 
syphilis treatment campaigns, you know, or yours, yours is closely related to syphilis, a single injection of penicillin and, and these horrible sores melt away. And um, um, in, in many parts of the world, that generated incredible belief in injections as, as the way to deal with any illness. Um, you know, the yours treatment campaigns, which were done on a large scale in many tropical countries, had a fantastic PR uh, benefit um, convincing people that, you know, there was a single injection that could actually cure everything at one point. But for the denominosis, pardon me, the early treatment, that was they had to have frequent injections, didn't they? they yes. I mean, it was it was very arduous. Um, you needed, um, I mean, the regime was about 50 injections uh, administered mm-hmm. on alternate days. And in the intervening days, they would dress the wounds um, uh, and, and, you know, look after other aspects of the illness. So, so it was, you know... It was a huge undertaking to treat thousands of people uh, with with intravenous injections over such an extended period. Yeah, and they kept extensive data on it, didn't they? It seemed like they were documenting it pretty thoroughly. Yeah, I mean, I wish there was more data because um, I know there are various reports that got lost, and there was a fire in Meraki that destroyed a lot of the records. So, so the, the for me, I was I was disappointed to find how few detailed records had survived uh, this episode. Yeah. So there's something I'm really interested in. And towards the end of the book, you describe your difficulty in trying to find a single Marind voice to contribute to it. My impression reading the book was that there's a constant tension in the text based on the fact that you, who are a white British doctor, are telling the tale of an indigenous culture as it was interpreted largely by white European colonial interests. And even as some of those Europeans were advocating for the Marin, and even as you yourself are trying to reevaluate history more on the side of uh, the Marin in the telling. And I think this is a dilemma that academia and wider society are becoming increasingly sensitive to. I wonder how you dealt with it as you worked on the book and how you feel about the end product. Well, a very searching question and quite complex one to answer. Um, I, I remain very conscious that, you know, I've written a book a bit like Van Baal did um, as, a, as an armchair scholar. Uh, I never got a chance to visit Meraki in person, although I tried extremely hard to set one up. Um, and I've only met one individual of part Marian descent, um, and that was a few years back in, in Amsterdam. So the ideas I've laid out in the book, you know, represent my best understanding of, of how events unfolded. Uh, and like any scientist, you know, I, I would want to revise them in the, if any new facts emerged. Um, the issue of the Marin voice uh, troubled me, you know, really right from the outset. Um, and I tried to compensate by, you know, searching as diligently as I could for whatever testimony um, the Marins um, might might have provided a hundred years back, um, but sadly, um, you know, there seems to be pitifully, pitifully little to unearth. Now, when my book was reviewed uh, by anthropologists, um, they too said, you know, you really do need to have more of a Marin voice here if you if you possibly can, and they also said, I think you're being a bit too kind to the white protagonists, and <laughs> and uh, could you pay please pay greater attention to the darker sides of imperialism and orientalism and the behavior of Catholic priests, which, you know, has come under fire a lot uh, lately. So in response to that, I sort of redoubled my efforts to, to find a married voice. And, and here I, I did, um, I, I struck lucky because, um, you know, I wrote to all the, all the people I knew who'd done field work in the area and said, look, can you help me? I really need to see if I can find someone to read my book or provide some more information. And luckily, um, I one of these contacts was a guy called Bruce Olson. He's a ling- linguist in, in Australia, and he'd done a PhD on the Marin language. And uh, he told me that he had a manuscript that had been presented to him while he was doing his field work by a woman um, who said, "This, I think this is important 
And I think you should take it into your safekeeping because it's going to perish if it stays in 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 in, in our village. And um, it was a, a typescript over a hundred pages, closely annotated, which had been written by a relative of this woman. He's he's now deceased, called um, uh, Yul Gebze, and um, the occasion for writing the manuscript was. Um, the Catholic Church was celebrating its hundredth year of mission in in Morocco and among the Marind, and um, this this man was a very unusual for the Marind. He was a he was someone who the Dutch had singled out as being um, intellectually very capable, and. Um, the Dutch, before the Indonesians took over, were trying to build up an educated elite among them, um, among uh, in, in West Papua, in the hope that eventually it would become independent, like the other half of the island, which is now Papua New Guinea. So, so uh, Yulgebze went to university in in Java, and um, he was a very able linguist. He was able to read everything that the anthropologists and the missionaries had written about his people. And as he did so, he became increasingly angry. He felt that he, that the Marians had been written about very disrespectfully. They'd been misunderstood. Uh, a lot of the rituals have been misinterpreted. So there's this sort of, in this manuscript, there's an explosion of anger um, about um, the sort of racist treatment and the discrimination that uh, had uh, come come, the Marian, come to the Marian from, from their colonial administrators. Um, and... It, it it did have a big impact on me just seeing this anger, seeing seeing the pain that this man felt about the way the man had been treated, um, and it, so it ended up that uh, you know sort of worked my way through this manuscript and and I wrote a new chapter for the book. I mean the book had already been accepted for publication, but I thought this was so important that mm. that uh, it's the ideal way to present the Marin's point of view. Um, and I was so glad that that this this late development in writing the book um, I, that I had the opportunity to do that. Um, so, going back to to the way I I tackled the story, I remember when I returned to the UK and started to use the story as a case study. Um, that I was very focused initially on the medical aspects. You know, it did seem. On the surface of it, to be a a model interve- model intervention that there'd been meticulous case finding and treatment carried out, and the the model village program um, was highly effective in terms of keeping young uninfected couples away from the older communities who were still suffering from infection. So, in terms of you know, it was a very effective way to control the epidemic. But what I didn't appreciate early on is just the, the cost to the Marins that, you know, um, they hated the, the medical surveys. They hated the fact that they'd been deprived of, of headhunting. Um, and so, you know, as time went on, I became incle- increasingly aware of the, the heavy price they, they had paid. And I feel that, you know, the Marins today are in a pre pretty bad place and i think a lot of that has to do with the um you know the leg is the legacy of decades of discrimination and and lack of true concern for their welfare i think you know if my book helps readers to understand that that um, when you're dealing with an epidemic um it's not just a job for doctors and public health experts it needs a kind of multidisciplinary approach uh, that is collaborative and involves dialogue with the affected community rather than the sort of coercive measures that were were used here um so i think uh yeah i think the book would be worthwhile if if you know the the way i've highlighted these injustices um uh, you know if i can bring that make people in other parts were more aware of, of what's happened here, um, that, 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 will, that that would be a good outcome for the book. And so is this a sort of, would this be an uh, evolving of your own consciousness maybe? Because you, you came at it, as you say, originally you were interested in the story of, 
a public health story, yeah. as it were. And you're not an anthropologist and you state that, and you, yeah. you know, you sourced anthropologists and then you obviously got uh, peer reviewers who were anthropologists. Yeah. And how much was this sort of a broadening of your own consciousness as you went about working on the book? Oh, very much so. You know, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm a different person as a result of writing this book. And, um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've always been a bit left leaning, but, but I had no idea of, of, uh, the, the full extent of, of the dark side of imperialism, let's put it that way. Um, uh, you know, I was, I was brought up, um, in, in Britain uh, there's a book, there's a map I illustrate in the book, you know, that hung on the wall of my bedroom, which was a map of the British Empire with this massive red, you know, centered on on a tiny little British island. And, you know, I was brought up to be proud of what what the British Empire was. But I at that time knew nothing about, you know, some of the some of the terrible things that went on in the name of of, you know, the civilizing mission was was what we were always taught at school. But in fact, you know, there was a lot of exploitation and, and some very harsh treatment of, of, uh, of you know, the, the in the British Empire, as in as it was in you know the Belgian Congo and the and the and uh, the German Empire, the Dutch Empire, they all they all had their darker side. Yeah. And and you write about that, you know, in the book, you sort of describe, uh, particularly when you get to that later chapter uh, that you added, and you describe your own process, um, you know, in arriving at that and, and trying to incorporate other perspectives. So I think it's a really valuable addition to that, the literature on um, looking at public health stories and imperialism. Uh, because there are a lot of those out there, and, I, and the ones I've seen are mostly written by anthropologists who have. So it's it's really interesting to see your perspective coming at it uh, from a sort of different angle, yeah. yeah, as it were, given your background. So the book ends on quite a sobering note, and I'll just read the last sentence, mm-hmm. which is, the manner in which the Marins are being treated today is uncivilized and shames those who condone or ignore it. So would you just briefly describe the situation for the Marin now? Well, in two words, pretty grim. They are marginalised, they're discriminated against, and to a considerable extent, they're now malnourished in this large swathe of of lands that they once owned. Um, After the epidemic um, that I write about, um, you know, there there was a sort of a little bit of development. Uh, the number of schools increased. Uh, attempts to to uh, develop agriculture mostly failed. Um, and then once Indonesia had taken over West Papua from the Dutch, uh, large numbers of migrants started to be settled in Marin territory. And they now outnumber the Marind. They benefit from most of the inward investment at the expense of the Marind. And and then more recently, large tracts of land have been coercively sold off to agribusiness interests. Um, and the rainforests are disappearing, being replaced by palm oil plantations. So there's pollution arising from that. There's certainly huge loss of biodiversity. And the Marin's traditional hunting grounds are shrinking uh, dramatically. Um, the, in, the incoming population get all the the employment opportunities and it's such a change i mean before the dutch arrived you know this was a land with very abundant food sources there was you know there were there were savanna like areas where you could hunt wallabies there were huge coconut forests there were sago stands they could fish from the rivers there was seafood on the seashore and so on and all of these resources have now shrunk dramatically there's been a land grab and uh, the Marians are in a pitiable state in, in, in a good number of their villages. I should add that this, this story about recent developments is, has been really well told in a, a, a second book about the Marin that came out this year, uh, written by anthropologist Sophie Chow, and it's called In the Shadow of the Palms. So I'm, I'm hoping that the combined impact of our, our two books, which, you know, 
look at the past and look at the present will enable readers to, to see the urgency of doing something more positive on behalf of this this very neglected and troubled people. Mm. Yeah, that was quite felicitous, your two books coming out at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that that it is interesting that you look back and there's the six public health success story yeah. um, of history, uh, but everything that's been wrought by... Uh, the other part of the story, yeah, uh, and is ongoing. So, uh, John, we have taken up a lot of your time today, but I wanted to ask you before we go because I know you're working on something completely different. <laughs> uh, would you tell us what your next project is? Okay, well, um, briefly, um, I've been I've been a musician throughout my life, and um, one of the things that I I did when I returned to Britain was to to set up a, a, a piano trio ensemble, and that led to eventually to my taking on a position at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, which is a very famous uh, museum, which uh, runs a con- Sunday concert series. So I took over the running of that concert series, um, and then uh, the museum appointed a new director uh, who asked me whether I could um, relate music programs more closely to items in the collections. And so that led to me um, looking for connections between composers and artists and um, producing a sort of new type of program notes that that uh, instead of analysing the music simply actually talked about the composer, the artist, and how the two connected and how they related to each other. And so the new book is an anthology of, of um, essays, uh, short essays, illustrated with a, a fine artwork uh, relating a piece of music to um, uh, a work of art. So a holistic sort of analysis. Uh, yes, I mean, as as with my, as with Tip Meraki, I go off down a lot of rabbit holes, and and yeah. uh, uh, you know, I just love exploring unusual connections between things. Yeah, yeah, which is really fascinating. So that is, you know, that's written. I'm now, you know, now back at square one in terms of trying to find a find a publisher that will show some interest. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Um, sometimes the most difficult part of writing a book. Uh, everyone, I want to remind you the book is Tick Meraki, an Epidemic Like No Other, published by Melbourne University Press by Dr. John Richens. And it's an absolutely fascinating read. And John, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, thank you too, Rachel, for, for a very, very enjoyable interview.